The Athletic. Jack Villeneuve came within five laps of winning on his F1 debut at the 1996 Australian Grand Prix, and to this day there remains confusion and multiple theories on the cause of the engine problem that cost him victory to teammate Damon Hill. Villeneuve certainly played his part in making the first World Championship race to take place at Melbourne's Albert Park a memorable one, as did Martin Brundle, whose Jordan flew through the air and broke in half just seconds into the new season. I'm Glenn Freeman and to help me through this tough task of revisiting the heartbreak of Villeneuve's F1 debut are Matt Beer and Gary Anderson. And Gary, of course, was the man who designed the Jordan that Brundle destroyed in that airborne crash. Uh, Matt, we'll come to you first. Good to have you with us for your first appearance of the series. You love a bit of mid-90s F1. So when you think back to Australia 96, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Being absolutely certain on that Sunday morning that Jacques Villeneuve was the most exciting F1 talent I'd seen so far and was going to win multiple titles. Um, but I was 15 at the time and I make those judgments without needing a lot of evidence. And I, ha- I have rethought it a little bit since. I would have been... I hadn't quite turned 10 then. So I made the same judgment and I'm yet to revise it. Um, I've seen no evidence to change my mind yet. Uh, Gary, uh, are you about to surprise us with your overriding memory or does it have to be the Brundle accident for you? Well, I won't surprise you telling you, telling you my age then. But um, <laughs> yes, I mean, the Brundle accident was obviously a big thing. But the, 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 my memory, and it still sticks and uh, it sort of, Nurks me a little bit still is the fact that Ross Braun felt he had to open his mouth and do a lot of shouting about the safety of our cars. And, uh, you know, that uh, if you live in a glass house, you shouldn't throw stones. And, uh, you know, he was part of that glass house. So I, I think what he did was, was wrong. But we'll probably come on to that a bit later. Yeah, we'll get to that. And, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll explore uh, the two sides of Ross Braun, depending on which side of the argument he's on uh, through his career. We've tried something new for this episode and asked some of you for your suggestions for the opening question as well. So here's a selection of the replies we received on Twitter. Thank you to everyone who, who sent one in. Philip West, uh, Nardonarios, Rudy Vandenbrink and Aaron Noonan were among the huge number of you to choose Brundle's crash, of course. We also had lots of mentions of Damon Hill's oily rear wing, including from Adam McCulloch, Simon, Stephen Camp and chairman of the board. Uh, Craig, I hope I've pronounced that right, says the race should have been in Adelaide. Colin Mills referenced oddly shaped Ferraris. Nigel Payne knows how to get on this show and says JV should have won. Nuts and Bolts says in Takianui's credit card getting declined. We will talk about that. And Mike Noon was one of a handful to pick Eddie Irvine out qualifying Michael Schumacher on their first weekend as Ferrari teammates. So again, thank you to everyone who sent one in. We had so many more than I could include. Um, but really enjoyed that experiment. So I'm sure we'll do it again in the future. We'll quickly do some review shout outs and there's something different here. We're going to go with some of you who aren't on Apple Podcasts. So you've got in touch in another way to tell us you'd leave us a nice review if you could. So thank you to Hope Marimi for offering us a million stars. That would certainly help our average. Brendan Ryan, who emailed to give us six stars. And uh, Dylan Jekyll, sorry if I've got that wrong, Dylan, for getting in touch to say you gave us five stars on Spotify. As always, we'll be taking your questions at the end 
of the series. So if you want to ask us anything about the V10 era, you can submit them using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter or email BringBackV10s at the-race.com. And if you'd like to get early access to ad-free versions of the show, plus bonus content and your own special chance to ask questions for an exclusive episode, then check out the Race Members Club. To find out about all the other benefits you get from being a member and to sign up, head to the-race.com forward slash members club. We'll start the subject of Australia 96 with a, a trivia question for our audience. Who was fastest in the final big pre-season test before everyone headed for Australia? Now, Matt and Gary know the answer to this because they can see the script. But if you're listening, you can have a bring back V10's bonus point if you know the answer was Mika Hakkinen for McLaren. However, nobody including McLaren, thought that was a sign they were going to be the fastest team heading into the new season. What was more of a concern for McLaren was that it suffered five engine failures during the final test at Estoril, with a new Mercedes engine that had only had its first run on the dyno eight days before it ran on track in February. Mercedes boss Norbert Haug said he couldn't promise we are as reliable as at the end of last year because the engine was completely new and it still had some question marks. But he felt Mercedes had achieved its aims of more power and better drivability. And Hakkinen said the engine was a big step, step forward, but still lacking some performance. And he stressed the importance of drivability over pure horsepower. New signing David Coulthard, who we'll come back to later in a bit more depth, said he couldn't expect McLaren to be fighting for pole position in Australia, but he was confident they could be challenging Ferrari and Benetton for best of the rest behind the Williams drivers. So Matt, uh, McLaren were coming off of a rough couple of years here in 94 and 95. What was a realistic target for the team heading into 96? Well, this was still the period when McLaren not being at the front felt like an anomaly. So even though its 95 season had been pretty embarrassing with the Mansell debacle and a, and a really hideously ugly car that had a lot of built-in handling problems, and 1994 had been spent basically in a fireball with Peugeot engines, the, the idea that McLaren was just starting to drift down the order you know, wasn't, wasn't, really, wasn't really in many people's heads. So as messy as 1995 had been, the team had made a lot of progress during the year. It had been aggressive with development. We hadn't really seen what uh, Mercedes could do in Formula 1 yet. It had been with Sauber, and it did its deal with McLaren very late ahead of 1995. So 96 was the first chance to really see Mercedes finding its feet with an F1 project at last. Um, it had put a huge effort into its new engine as well. So there were lots of ingredients that were coming back together and lots of reasons to think that McLaren's kind of embarrassing period would be a, would be a blip. Uh, as it turned out, within a few years, it was uh, winning championships again. Um, at that point, we weren't thinking McLaren's going to be winning races. I think that kind of best of the rest position um, was a much more realistic aim. But given that at times in 95, it had been fighting Pacifics and 40s at the back, admittedly after like terrible tyre gambles and massive misjudgments, just a kind of respectable, non-embarrassing podium regular 96 would have been a, a good target for McLaren. And Gary, I want to get your input here based on your experience of dealing with with engine suppliers. How crazy is it to think that back then, because I'm sure this doesn't happen now, you could go from a dyno run to sticking a completely new engine in the car for testing in eight days, so just over a week? Yeah, it's pretty tough. But the, the big thing is, I mean, you design the car to drawings. You don't just have to have the engine sitting there ready to go. But Obviously, quite a lot of it's finalised whenever you put the engine in the car. And I'm sure they've done that. You know, if I look forward a couple of years to 1998 when we changed from Peugeot to Honda, we were actually at Silverstone 
with the car sitting on the, uh, the out the back of the truck at a free test before getting the phone call from uh, from Japan to say we could run the car that they'd actually found solutions to the problems on the diner that they were having. So um, it can be very late in the day, and, and that was just a week before the first race. So, you know, you, you, you can only do the best you can, but as I say, you design the car from, from all the drawings. You'll have dummy engines to put in the car, one thing or another, so it's, you might not get the, the running engine until, until very late in the day, but that's, it's, that's not such a big problem. Now, Hakkinen had only returned to an F1 cockpit in early February after suffering a cracked skull in the the crash he had at the end of the year in 95 in Adelaide. And until he got back in the car, there had been doubts about if he'd be able to drive again. Hakkinen has said in several interviews since that he felt the mechanics and the, and the, the general guys in the team, guys and girls in the team, would doubt that he was still up to it when he returned to test. And he was determined to show he was still capable of going flat out. At the time in 96, he said he reckoned it would take up to six months to regain his fitness. But he said on the F1 Beyond the Grid podcast uh, years later that it wasn't until late 97 that he got back to his physical peak. He said some very similar things in that interview to what he'd said in 96 about having to forget about the accident. He said, I did feel a little more tense than normal, but you tell yourself not to think about it. It wasn't easy. You're human. You have feelings. And you have to fight a bit not to think about it. But you have to control it because if you start getting emotional when you're driving, you can forget it. You never get over it. You cannot escape what you've gone through. You have to live with it. You have to work harder. Otherwise, you start feeling pity for yourself. And I don't think that's going to take you far in life. Matt, how remarkable was it to see Hackenham back in a car and straight up back on the pace just a few months after an accident that could have taken his life? Yeah, it was it was incredible, but it was almost too incredible because it set the bar really high straight away, and it gave the impression that really after that first race that that story was over for Hakkinen, that he'd fully recovered, and this was back to the old Hakkinen. He had this reputation at the time of being the kind of stone cold, unemotional Finn. So certainly, as fans at that point, you thought, okay, that that's done. He's he's back to being Hakkinen. That was an incredible recovery over the winter, but that story's over. I think now we understand even more about head injuries and their consequences and the long-term nature. And I think we also understand a lot more about Mika Hakkinen's emotional depth from the interviews he's given after retirement than, than any of us really did at the time. So, yeah, in the moment, you know, you, we'd all seen the pretty horrifying images of him being carried out of the car in Adelaide. We, we knew what had happened in hospital afterwards and, and how serious a situation that had been for Hakkinen and his family and Ron Dennis and McLaren. But because he came back in and just jumped straight on the pace, it was, it became very quickly too easy to to write off what he'd been through and what effect it might still be having. Yeah, the one thing I just sort of like to add there is uh, I can relate back to Rubens' accident in Imola in nineteen ninety four. Rubens obviously had a massive shunt in the in the Friday practice Friday qualifying session, and then uh, Roland Ratzenberger lost his life on the Saturday. And Ayrton Senna lost his life on the Sunday, so it was a, a terrible weekend. Um, Rubens went back to Brazil to, to uh, Ayrton's uh, funeral. And when he came back, we did a sort of shakedown test at Silverstone. And we were, as a team, we were all wondering about the same thing. Will he be okay with all that that stress that he'd gone through from his accident? And obviously Ayrton Senna, who was a close friend of his. And uh, Rubens and I were quite good friends at that point in time. And he said, you know, I've, I've got to go out and, and I've got to... I've got to show to myself that I can be competitive again. Uh, so he just wanted to go out there and wring the car's neck. 
uh, around the, the, uh, the South Circuit at Silverstone. And I can understand that now because, you know, it was just one of those things that was important to him. It was also important to us to show that he hadn't lost anything. And, you know, he did that. From, so from, you know, from lap five of, of that uh, that sort of shakedown test as such, he was he was flat out and on it again. So uh, put everybody to, to rest it. You can overcome these things, but as Mika Hagen said, you know, you can't keep thinking about them. You've just got to move on and take the next step. I think that's what a racing driver is capable of doing. That's what he has to do. Another team expected to be in the mix behind Williams was Benetton, which was starting its new era post-Michael Schumacher, who had taken the number one with him to Ferrari. Ross Braun played down any concerns about Benetton's pace in pre-season, saying, We don't think Williams will disappear into the distance. We can be a bit of a slow starter. And if we get to the first race and we're a little bit behind, I'll make, I, I'm sure we'll make a massive effort to get back in front. There's still a lot more to come and the times have been quite encouraging given the driver's relative unhappiness with the car. They're quite surprised by the lap times they're doing given the number of things we still have to get working. Braun was less happy behind the scenes though. He admitted in his book that he'd suggested a restructure of the team over the winter to, in his words, take Benetton to the next level and it had all been agreed with team boss Flavio Briatore but then was never implemented. Braun said, the team structure was a bit old for historical reasons and I felt there was some conflict that was not constructive and I wanted to have overall responsibility for the whole thing and restructure the group. My new contract was drawn up and I was going to have total responsibility for the whole thing, except I didn't. So Gary, we'll come on to the Benetton driver lineup in a moment, but in terms of the team, given they'd won the Constructors' Championship as well in 95, and their second car with Johnny Herbert had won a couple of races. Did you think Benetton would be capable of remaining a contender at the front, even without Michael Schumacher? Um, yeah, you have to expect that, I think. You know, the team, although Ross wanted to restructure it, the team was structured very well. You know, we always looked at that point in time, we always looked at the big four, which were um, McLaren, Ferrari, Williams and Benetton. And... You know, when they got their act together, they were the big four. That's that's, that's how they operated. So, you know, if you could if you could mix it with them at any given race or in any championship, you could you could go away with a bit of a smile on your face because you knew you'd done a pretty good job. And uh, you know, as you say, Johnny won a couple of races. It was one of those sort of things that you know, Michael was a driving force, I believe, in the, in the team. And obviously, that's the thing. If you lose that driving force, then suddenly you're you're scratching for who you follow. I think Ross knew that if um, you know if you give Michael a tenth of a second's worth of lap time with a setup change or whatever, he'll find you one and a half tenths. That's that's the difference. Whereas others will tell you it's better, but not to go any quicker. So it's a very difficult thing, and only only if you're inside it do you realise you know who is the driving force within the team. And I think what Ross was trying to do was set up the team to be stronger as a unit as opposed to having to have one guy pulling up, pulling the strings and making the team function correctly. So Ross was right in what he was trying to do, but um, you know, obviously you have to work within budgets that team has, teams have and, and the, the manpower available. As for the driver lineup, while Schumacher went from Benetton to Ferrari, both of uh, Jean Alesi and Gerhard Berger went in the other direction from Ferrari to Benetton. Braun felt this was a mistake. Alesi was signed as soon as it was known Schumacher was leaving and Braun was excited about the chance to harness Alesi's talent by managing him better than had been the case at Ferrari. 
However, Ross wasn't happy that Berger was signed from Ferrari as well. Ross said uh, in his book, Gerhard was a late addition. That was the worst thing that we could have done. Berger and Alessi had a fractious relationship when they were both at Ferrari. Alessi went bananas when he heard Berger was coming. So we had this team that was going to be focused on Alessi and shaping itself to Alessi because we thought that Alessi was an unfulfilled talent who hadn't achieved his potential and we could unlock it. And suddenly we stuck Gerhard into the mix. Gerhard would want a completely different car to what Jean would want. We would go testing and Gerhard would give an opinion and Jean would give a different one and it was very difficult to manage. We had a very good car in 1996, as good as we had had previously, and we didn't win a race. The team wasn't gelling. Matt, do you think a Benetton team properly built around a Lacey, as Ross is trying to describe there, could that have worked? I just I can't fathom a situation in which constructing anything around Jean Lacey can possibly <laughs> can possibly function. It's like trying to build a house and going, okay, today that the foundations are concrete, tomorrow they're molten lava. It, it's not going to, you don't know what you're going to get. Alessi's talent, I've, I've got so much respect for at its peak. Some of the drives he was capable of were just incredible, but they were so often one-off drives. I always think of Suzuka 95 recovering from a penalty in, in the damp, I think in slicks, on, on slicks in the damp, um, as something I don't think many other people in the grid, even Schumacher could have done. But the, the peaks and troughs of his performance were, were so extreme and some of the errors he threw in were, were so unfathomable. Even in the Benetton years later on, you'd have him running out of fuel because he forgot pit stops were a thing in, in Melbourne a year later. Um, an incident we might talk about later in Melbourne in 96 showed a different side of Alessi as well. So it's, it's, it's almost naive from Braun to think, yeah, I can definitely harness this talent. The only thing that's wrong here is that Ferrari was a bit too emotional for him. Alessi was quoted himself that winter saying that um, people saying he was more emotional than Schumacher should see how Schumacher feels when his car's breaking down all the time. Well, we got a look at that later on and actually it was pretty calm, pretty measured and he, and he built a championship winning team out of, out of that situation. Whereas Alessi just was not wired to be a championship contender. And um, even with the ideal calm measured number two, who was great at testing and liked the same setup and the whole team, doing absolutely what a lazy wanted probably every three or four races he'd still throw it off the road for no reason or just be a second off his actual pace for no obvious reason as well so you know he might win half a season and score nothing in the rest of the, in the rest of the campaign if he had best car so no this is a rare occasion when ross braun was absolutely wrong i'd say Another big topic in pre-season was a technical row that broke out over the new high cockpit sides for 1996 to give drivers better protection either side of their heads in an accident. Most teams had interpreted the rules as they were intended, which resulted in big armchair-style cockpits around the drivers, but Williams and Jordan found ways to lower the cockpit sides, and if I've got the understanding right, and Gary can tell me in a minute, they both did this in different ways. As we've got Gary here, we'll come to Jordan first. Um, and yeah, correct me if I've got this wrong. But the suggestion was that Jordan had achieved a lower angle for the cockpit sides by measuring the height of them based on the back of the rollover structure rather than the front like everybody else. And I mean, you mentioned it earlier, but I'll throw in what Ross Braun said about this. Um Ross said, the top of the roll hoop is the top of the roll hoop, and you can't use two different positions to measure it. As far as I can see in the Jordan, the helmets are well outside the cockpit, so I'm sure there's going to be some fuss over that. 
So Gary, firstly, tell us how you came up with this clever solution, which was obviously declared legal. And what was the reports at the time about measuring it from the back of the roll hoop? Is that correct? Um, not, not quite. Um, what we did was reverse the roll hoop. In other words, the roll hoop normally comes up, the, the front leg of the roll hoop comes up fairly vertically. And the rear leg that goes to the back of the chassis is sort of angled. Um, and the way the regulations are written was you had to have a, uh, a straight a straight line between the forward roll hoop, which is just a the monocoque really in front of the steering wheel, to the rear roll hoop, and it had to clear the driver's head, the driver's helmet. Um, so whenever we reversed the roll hoop, um, you you have the definition of where the roll hoop is is where they put the load test on the roll hoop. So you can put the load test on in a certain position. The team defines where that position is. And from there, you're allowed 50 millimeters of deflection, or you were allowed 50 millimeters of deflection. And that happens on both the forward roll hoop and the, and the rear roll hoop. So we reversed the, roll, the rear roll hoop, defining the position to be further back. But in theory, it's still the front of the roll hoop. And the load test still goes in in the same direction from the forward point. Um, so none of that's changed. The roll hoop is just further back, I suppose you might call it. And then to make the, the, the line between the, the rear roll hoop and the front roll hoop past the, uh, the driver's helmet, we raised the spike on the front of the chassis. So there was a spike sitting up there and it was 45 millimeters high or whatever because you're allowed, again, that 50 millimeter deflection. And when you get to the chassis, then the chassis takes the, the load. So that was our solution to, to finding it. Everything was still in place. Um, so it was, it was as, as required by the regulations as far as the rollover bars were concerned, as far as the line was concerned over the top of the driver's helmet. But the, uh, the, the headrest, this, the front of the headrest as such, was defined from that line. So there was an offset to that line. So because we had a shallower line, uh, we had a shallower headrest area, which meant it didn't look like a, a rubbish skip which was what, you know, like a Ferrari, for example, did look like. Um, so it's one of those sort of things. You, you dig deep into the regulations, as Ross Braun himself has been very, very good at over the years, and you find solutions to your problem. And you wor you worry about other people's problems at a later point in time. Um, but that's what he was really upset about. He wasn't really upset with the fact of anything else. It was just that they had got it wrong at Benetton, as had uh, John Barnard at Ferrari. Yeah, we'll look at the uh, the Williams solution then, as Adrian Newey went about it in a different way. And despite Braun's claims that the Jordan driver's heads were sticking out of the cockpit too far, that's nonsense. The Williams headrest was even lower than the Jordan's. Newey found a loophole in that the, the height of the chassis beside the driver's head was specified, but the rules did not explicitly say the height of the headrest had to be the same. The headrest only had to have a minimum total area, so Newey took that area and placed it as low as possible above the driver's shoulders. Then he satisfied the chassis height regulation with a tiny fin on the top of the headrests. Braun had initially said the Williams looked sensible when he was busy tearing into Gary and Jordan. But by the time he got to Australia, he was less happy, saying, When the rules were made, the intention was clear, and I'm not sure the intention has been met. They comply with the letter of the rules. It's just a question of whether we need to rewrite the rules. It is up to the authorities to decide whether it complies with the spirit. Newey addressed that complaint in his excellent book, saying, Our rivals did not sp spot the loophole and got very upset at the first race at Melbourne. But rules are rules and there is no clause about intent of the regulation. 
Now, Matt, as Gary's hinted at already, given some of the tricks Ross Braun has pulled over the years with interpretations of the rules and credit to him for those, was this a bit rich for him to start clinging to the intention of the rules in this case? Oh, absolutely. But it is also the nature of humans and humans in competitive sport, isn't it? I mean, there's a very small list of people in F1 who can genuinely look at a big picture situation and go, "Okay, this might disadvantage my team, but it's definitely for good of the sport. So let's keep going with it. And, you know, 25 years on, Braun's in the opposite position and saying a lot of things that are good for F1, even if they disadvantage certain teams. So, you know, probably at that point, he might have been influenced by the fact that 96 was not long after 94. It's quite nice for Benetton to be able to look at another team and go, ooh, were they cheating? (laughs) After, yeah, all of that coming in his direction for most of the little while before that. And Gary, what did you make of the Williams solution? Were you impressed with what Adrian came up with? Yes, I was. I mean, it's, it's again, another way of looking at it, getting the headrest lower down on the top of the chassis. At that point in time, we never sort of um, read that solution, I suppose you might call it. It was just one of those difficult things to, you know, we sat in the, in the, in the what they called the, the technical working group with the FIA when these regulations were all being changed and there was a technical representative from each team. I was the one from, from Jordan. And after Ayrton Senna's accident, we were coming up with stuff to try and you know protect the driver better or survival cell, make it into a survival cell instead of a monocoque. And uh, so at each meeting, you know, th- some of these things were being proposed. So you were sitting there thinking about it as you were signing up to it, I suppose you might call it, or as you were debating it. Um, so you're always trying to find the solutions. And our first solution was turning the rollover by the other way around to... Uh, to achieve it so we 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 sort of achieved it i suppose without thinking about it in the in the same line as adrian i uh, end up thinking about it so um oh well, you know again it's the same old deal there is no there is no rule that says this is the intent it's all about the numbers you know the numbers are, are black and white and that's what you've got to to uh, abide by yeah we'll uh, we'll revisit what ross said here when we get to say malaysia 99 where he's tilting the angle of a barge board by about 0.4 of a degree or something to to make it legal. But that's a story for another time. We're going to stick with Jordan for now because the team was in the news on the eve of the season when it landed a major new sponsorship with Benson and Hedges. This would become one of the iconic F1 sponsorship deals, although initially the money involved was not massive, according to Eddie Jordan, as the deal came together so late and most of uh, B&H's marketing budget was already committed elsewhere. But Eddie used the announcement in 1996 to talk up Jordan's hopes and ambitions. He said, now I believe that winning races and in the longer term, the world championship is within our grasp. The company is getting stronger and I believe we must win in 1996. There are no excuses this time. If we have luck, I believe we can finish third in the championship this year. And I'll be very angry if we don't finish in the top four. So Gary, I have to ask, how did you feel Firstly, about Jordan landing a major new title sponsor. And as the man responsible for the car, and by definition, its competitiveness, what did you think when you heard Eddie talking about no more excuses, winning races and finishing in the top three or four of the championship? Um, <clears throat> I suppose what we were very good at at Jordan for a long, long time was talk. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, the actions come after you've planned it for quite a while. You know, no Formula One team will say we can you know, switch the light on today and the, and, and the light will burn brightly. You just have to uh, end up doing, um, putting the things in place that you need, filling in the, in the holes that are missing. And w- one of our biggest problems was really the, the planning for the future. 
you know, as we say, the, the sponsorship came late in the day. That was a typical example. Um, you can't plan for the future if your sponsorship is arriving late in the day. You have to have it in place, long-term contracts, and then you can start to plan your, your where you're going to try and go to. We as a team, you know, still operated quite a lot, and the, the you know the last man out switched the light off because there was nobody left when she went to a race meet. And so keeping uh, you know a program going back at the factory while you're away at races was was a, a tough task. Um, development program or whatever you like to call it, it was always difficult to just keep that momentum going. And I think that's what what hurt us. Uh, as the season progressed, we normally started at a reasonably decent level if we didn't have some reliability problem. But again, it was you know getting into bed with Persia was not an easy task. '95 was a was a major upheaval for us because we had a great relationship with Brian Hart in '94, um, and and we were still finding our feet with Persia in, in 1996. The engine was better, but we never ever we never always got the best from them because they were so conscious of reliability. They were so conscious of reliability, actually the engine became unreliable, if you, if you understand what I'm saying, because they were, they were trying so hard to make it reliable. So easy, easy to talk and hard to do. Long-term planning was what we missed. I have to say, though, Gary, your talk really did work. As a 15-year-old, I had so many Jordan posters going into 1996. I was like a massive Rubens fan. I liked the idea of Brundle being there. thought he was the missing piece, and Eddie gave the hit gave the thing such a kind of exciting air that they're, they're basically my, my second favorite thing on the grid after Villeneuve at, at that point and uh, you know when we came to Brazil a couple of weeks after the race we're talking about and you had that great qualifying there I definitely told all my friends that you were going to get a 1-2 in that race based on very little evidence yeah I mean you know obviously a bit of luck here and there might help I mean you know the, the car wasn't slow um, we, we qualified 8th out of 20 there was 22 cars there so 20 started the race in 96 and Rubens qualified eighth. And it was one of those sort of situations where, you know, currently we've got 20 cars in the Formula 1 grid, and if you qualify eighth, you've done a pretty decent job. So at the end of the day, you know, you can only do what you can do. Um, I think Rubens was a major factor in what Jordan could have been. And I don't think Martin Brundle was the best signing personally uh, that, that, um, that we could have done. We needed to have that, that youth and hunger of somebody else. Um, not somebody who was looking for the pension fund. And, you know, that, that's what we ended up with because obviously there was a name there, a, a British name, Benson Hedges sponsorship. But I think uh, another younger teammate alongside Ribbons, you would have seen a, a completely different Jordan Grand Prix in 19, 1996. Another late deal ahead of the season resulted in Giancarlo Fisichella, future Jordan driver, getting uh, to make his F1 debut for Minardi in Australia. This only came about when the unforgettable Taki Inui lost the drive because his sponsorship money fell through. Team boss Giancarlo Minardi said the team would give Inui the chance to reclaim the seat if he could sort out the money, but he added, if he doesn't find a sponsor, then we cannot help him any longer. Inui explained what happened here in an interview with Autosport in 2012, back when he first emerged as a bit of a sensation on social media, mainly for poking fun at himself. He said Minardi offered to let him do the first three races of the year in a bid to convince his sponsors to get back on board, but Inui said, that's not fair. If I pay, I drive. If I don't pay, I don't drive. Otherwise, I owe you. And he said he was happy that Fissy Keller got the seat initially, he said, Fissy grabbed the opportunity. That was good for me too. If I had let a wanker driver jump in the car and he was just messing around, then I would have felt it was not much different to me driving. 
Inui also said he was on the verge of a deal with Arrows before that, where he would have had to give up the seat for three races to a Brazilian driver, which must have been Ricardo Rosset. And then at last minute, the team told him that deal was off as well. Matt, is it in any way a shame that we didn't get to see Taki Inui have another crack at F1 in 1996? No. No, sorry, but being slightly amusing for 10 minutes on Twitter in 2010 does not make up for <laughs> the absolute waste of a Grand Prix seat this guy was. I People people have moaned about pay drivers forever, and I think a lot of that, a lot of the time those complaints aren't valid. A lot of quite good drivers bring money, and really most drivers who get to F1 do make it pretty much on merit. But mid-90s was a real problem, and it was basically Inui exemplifying it. That year at Arrows, that was not a terrible car. That was solidly up on midfield. Mobidelli did some quite good stuff with it. And Anui's wasting a seat there on the basis of a Formula 3000 season where his average qualifying was 19th and his teammate Sospiri was a title contender in 94. So the guy was just absolute shit with no redeeming qualities as a racing driver whatsoever. And okay, it was, you know, he got rolled by a safety car and got run over by another one. There was, yeah, there was, you know, these days there'd be great memes, but no. That was, he was the most offensive pay driver in the time I've been following F1, I would say. And yeah, no, no. And I know, and even Giovanni Lavaggi ended up in that Minardi later in the season. That was less offensive, very slightly, than Inui tugging around in it. Yeah, Lavaggi was the name that came to mind for me while you were going on that rant. Uh, another big announcement, another big announcement, a much bigger announcement than Taki Inui not being on the grid took place just before the start of the 96 season when Bridgestone announced it was coming into F1 in 1998. And you did hear me right there. Initially, the plan was 98, not 97, as they ended up doing. Bridgestone had been considering an F1 entry since 1985, and they'd been testing with various cars they could get their hands on, usually with the help of Mugen Honda, since 1989. By 94, their test engineers reckoned that with a two-year build-up, an F1 entry was possible, but management didn't think the company was strong enough corporately yet to handle the cost of F1. A year later, Bridgestone took Firestone back into IndyCar racing, which internally was called an important tailwind for the F1 project. It also gave Bridgestone a look at what it was like competing with Goodyear, which raced in IndyCar and F1 at the time. Also in 95, Bridgestone gained 19% in global market share, making it the number one tyre manufacturer in the world. So now it felt it did have that corporate power to take on F1 and boost its profile in Europe. Bridgestone president Yoichiro Kaizaki pushed for F1 and got the decision approved, but he was told by the board that he would be fired if Bridgestone failed. The decision to come in a year earlier for 97 wasn't taken until later in 96 when Bridgestone realised its test tyres were competitive with Goodyear and it felt it was better to not give Goodyear the time to up its development rate to react to having a new competitor. The main reaction from the teams in Australia was that a tyre war was going to push up costs and many of the leading technical figures in the paddock felt that F1 was getting along just fine with Goodyear as a single supplier Gary, how did you feel about the news that Bridgestone was coming in? Well, I I, I agreed with the other technical people that you know um, a one tire make formula is a better solution because you know if you've got the wrong tires on your car, there's nothing you can do. You're stuck with it. That's unfortunately that's the problem. So with a one tire make formula and the formula that we had, which was a team's formula, 
uh, for constructors championships um, you felt that was sort of going to be taken away but at the end of the day you know at formula a team that uh, uh, sorry at the end of the day a, a tire company that's there that's sort of just a little bit gone to sleep not pushing development is is going nowhere and, and goodyear were like that a little bit they you know they had had it easy for quite a long time they knew the competition was 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 themselves they didn't have to go out of out of uh, their technology knowledge to to change things so it would wake wake them up a little bit when uh, when Bridge, Bridgestone would come in, but that you know that that was the only thing that was positive about it. But we expected Goodyear to continue, really. I suppose you might say, but obviously uh, those plans all changed as the years went by. And it was good to see Bridgestone coming in. Obviously, we went there as well. Um, it was good to see them coming in, and we used their tires. But again, it was one of those sort of situations where even within themselves, you know, there was teams that got better tires than other teams and uh, I could say Ferrari here you know they got better tires than Jordan did uh, in the early 2000s because Fer- Ferrari put more into it Ferrari put more money into it more testing into it more more infrastructure into making the the Bridgestone tire work well so it wasn't wrong but it would definitely been a better formula I think if we just kept a, a single tire manufacturer Let's get into the race weekend then, where Jacques Villeneuve took pole position for his F1 debut, out-qualifying established Williams teammate Damon Hill by a tenth of a second. Hill said at the time he wasn't surprised because he'd seen what Villeneuve was capable of in testing, but Damon admitted in his book years later that he had a feeling of slight disappointment to be out-qualified. That testing point is worth noting. Villeneuve appeared in, in a special series on F1 TV called Jolly and Palmer's F1 Classics, where they analysed this race together, which I'd thoroughly recommend. And Villeneuve stressed the importance of his pre-season mileage. He said, back then we used to test a lot. We spent most of December and the whole of January in Portugal testing, three to four days a week. The amount of miles before the first race was extreme. I was confident in driving the car, especially in qualifying. Villeneuve also released a book at the end of 1996, where he talked about each weekend in detail naturally I have two copies of that and in there he said that he knew from testing that the team would be competitive but he wasn't expecting that he'd be able to fight for wins straight away he said that pole position changed his expectations but he was still apprehensive about the race mainly because of having to do a standing start for the first time since 1993 and because F1 didn't have safety car periods like IndyCar racing did so he was unsure about having to do a whole race distance flat out Matt, you were already on the Villeneuve hype train, having been a big fan of mid-90s IndyCar like I was. But even so, were you surprised to see Villeneuve out-qualify Hill to get pole first time out? Yeah, definitely. Even, like you say, with the excitement about Villeneuve, and I'd read so much about Gilles Villeneuve as well that I was like, spirit of the greatest is in him and everything as well. So all that was there. Damon Hill hadn't been driving at his best by a long way at the end of 95, even given all that. The fact Villeneuve out-qualified him at the first go was was really fell out of the blue. And I think from memory, he did it with the last lap of qualifying as well after Hill had been quicker through the session. So it, straight away, it uh, it raised expectations, which for me personally as a fan were pretty high anyway. And it just brought that little bit of Villeneuve drama straight in as well. The second row of the grid was a Ferrari lockout with Eddie Irvine surprisingly ahead of Michael Schumacher. We've covered this weekend from Ferrari's perspective as part of our episode all about Schumacher moving to Ferrari, so we won't dwell on them too much here. 
Mick Hakkinen was fifth, uh, just ahead of both Benetons. But the second McLaren of David Coulthard was down in 13th, more than a second slower than Hakkinen. Coulthard wrote in his book that this was an eye-opening weekend for two reasons. Firstly, he said that lining up 13th on the grid uh, was when the penny dropped that he'd left Williams for money. But he also said there were already signs of the McLaren favouritism towards Hakkinen that would plague DC's time there. Coulthard said said in his book that when Ron Dennis walked into a debrief in Australia, DC got up to shake his hand and Ron ignored him. Uh, Coulthard went on to describe, Instead, he strode over to sit next to Mika and said, What's the plan, guys? We all listened to Mika's plans. And then Ron said, OK, and what are they doing? Here was my team principal sitting on the other side of the table to me, next to my teammate, talking about me as if I was in a rival team. They is not a word you use in a team situation, surely. Suddenly, this whole world of paranoia and cynicism gripped me. So, Gary, have you ever seen anything like that inside a team? I suppose you could say there for DC, it was welcome to the real world because, you know, that, that's what happens. Um, when you get two, two competitive drivers, it's always very, very difficult. And it's up to the two drivers themselves to sort of to uh, dilute that, I think you might call it. So it, it does make it very difficult. I can feel for DC there because, you know, obviously um, for, for Mika Hakkinen, after his uh, his shunt and one thing another, Ron Dennis, you know, father figure, all that stuff. It was it was a dedicated team in that direction, and, and uh, DC would just have to build his credentials, I suppose, with it. But uh, it's a difficult situation when the two drivers can't actually work together and bring the team, you know, move the team forward together as a unit. On to race day then, and after his pre-race worries, Villeneuve made a great start from pole, and things got even better when Hill got out of shape exiting turn one and fell behind both Ferraris to fourth. But that was about to count for nothing, as at turn three, Martin Brundle's Jordan launched over the top of Johnny Herbert's Sauber and Coulthard's McLaren, then broke in half as it came back down to earth in the gravel trap. Brundle was okay and quickly scrambled out of the wreckage to everyone's relief and surprise. Speaking about the crash afterwards, he said, I had a lovely clear road ahead of me and then suddenly there was nothing but cars going slowly. I was flat out in sixth, so the closing speed was too high for me to do anything about it. The accident seemed to go on for a very long time. I didn't need the last two rolls. I'd got the message by then that I'd had an accident. So Matt, analyse this crash for us if you can. Was was Brundle just unlucky as he described there? Yeah, to an extent. Um that corner, turn three at Melbourne, we now know how tricky it is. It's a kind of a funnel and a tunnel feeling with with the narrow approach. It was dusty. It was unfamiliar to everyone. And the grid was sort of strangely spread out approaching it as well. A couple of cars um, hadn't got off the line. Both Tyrrells had stalled. Pedro Lamy and Heinz Harold Trent were missing from the grid for, for different reasons. So the middle of the pack was a little bit stretched out. And then approaching that corner, quite a few people end up off the racing line on the dusty inside. And it actually starts with Brundle's teammate, Barrichello, at the head of a pack. Uh, he's racing with Panis and he squeezes Panis on the inside. Coulthard's behind them. Um, at the same time, Verstappen, Jos Verstappen and Johnny Herbert are having a pretty similar moment just behind. Um, Herbert breaks to avoid Verstappen and Herbert goes across the track onto the outside. And um, Coulthard breaks so hard to avoid Barrichello and Panis checking up in front of him that he loses the car. Coulthard actually says he he assumed he was hit by someone, but he loses the rear of the car in this bizarre pendulum way. So you've got Coulthard and Herbert coming across the track, and 
Brundle with these gaps on the grid has actually had quite a good run on everybody and he's got a surprisingly big closing speed. Now he's at the back because he had an absolutely abysmal qualifying. Um, it's very interesting to hear Gary's comments on, on Brundle earlier. He was 1.8 seconds off Barrichello and 11 places behind him on the grid on his, on his F1, first F1 appearance with Jordan. Um, he's cleared Ricardo Rosset off the line and he's racing wheel to wheel with Giancarlo Fisichella on his Minardi and F1 debut and Brundle's actually on the racing line on the outside going past Fisichella and has quite a gap to the cars ahead which then really do suddenly slow um, he probably could not do a lot to avoid that he does lock up and start twitching at the last minute but he's pretty much in, in the air by then so um, yeah uh, hope that is enough a mental picture of cars slewing across the road for you but I, I don't think there's a huge amount he could have done about that given the kind of chain reaction happening in front of him now before we bring gary in this is what eddie jordan said about this moment in his book uh, eddie said we feared the worst because this had been a massively spectacular accident for a brief period we could see no movement then to everyone's enormous relief brundle crawled out from between the overturned chassis and the gravel when Martin stood up and looked around, it was evident that not only was he alive, but also, unbelievably, he was unhurt. So, Gary, that, those were Eddie's thoughts at the time. What was going through your mind when you saw all of this unfolding in a matter of seconds? Well, as you say, it was a matter of seconds. The big thing that Eddie says there, it was, it was spectacular, and that's always good. It's the, it's the stopping that hurts. Having an accident is, is okay. Um, and bits flying off all over the place is okay but uh, it's the stopping as I say you want to make sure that doesn't happen too quickly so you know you're watching it happen and to be honest you don't see it you know it's it's all happening so fast uh, you recognise it's one of your cars that's elevated I suppose you might call it clear the top of everybody else and you, you know you, you're you're completely on to the next thought almost immediately as to, you know, will the risk get red flagged or what, what do we do next? Um, but then you, you see the aftermath of it and then you see the replays and stuff and you understand what's going on. So, you, you, you know, you have to, if you're there competing, you have to see past what's happening in front of you and be thinking on the next step. And that's what you know, I've always tried to be doing whenever uh, things are unfolding in front of you. You should be thinking of what the next step would be if they, if they unfold differently. And amazingly, thanks to this being the era of spare cars, the next step for Brundle was to take the restart, but only after a fair bit of uh, pageantry, should we say, in front of the world's cameras in the pit lane. Brundle said he was forced to go and get approval from F1 doctor Sid Watkins before he could take the restart, even though Sid had uh, seen he was fine at the scene of the accident and hadn't even got out of his, his medical car because he could see local doctors were dealing with, with Brundle, who gave him a thumbs up. So Brundle rang the length of the pit lane to find Sid. Uh, and a, a few of you uh, did mention this in, in, in the Twitter question we put out. That this was the overriding memory for you guys, Brundle running up and down the pits. Um, and Martin said the only pain he had that evening was in his ankles, as he'd not been able to run on hard ground since his massive crash at Dallas in 1984. So that jog up and down the pits did more damage than the crash itself. Eddie Jordan said something else interesting in his book. Uh, he said, Brundle's initial reaction was that someone had had an accident and caused the race to be stopped, not really taking in that it was his accident. Such was his focus on getting back to the pits in the hope that he could take the spare car. While all Martin's limbs appeared to be working, there was no telling what unseen damage might have been caused if he had received a knock on the head. After some questions from Sid, Martin was given the all clear. 
Now, Gary, our, our understanding around concussions and that sort of thing wasn't the same back then as it is today. Looking back now, do you think it was wise for Martin to take that restart? Well, I personally didn't want him to take the restart because I didn't think he was uh, ready for it. Um, he would be starting at the back again, you know, all that stuff. It's, it's so easy to have a second accident. Uh, as you say about concussions, the, the, the question that Sid asked him uh, to see if he had any sort of concussion was where did he leave his wallet before <laughs> the race start? And uh, he remembered where he left his wallet. So that meant as far as Sid was concerned, you'd, you know, you're okay. So things have changed dramatically, but I, I don't think he should have taken the restart. But, you know, you get into this hype of everything that's going on around you and uh, everybody is making decisions at that point in time. So he wanted to go and race, so we strapped him in and, and sent him off. But uh, I don't think he should have been allowed to by the by the officials. But it is a long time ago now, so you know, things have changed dramatically. He wouldn't have been allowed to start the race, you know, now. Um, so it's it's one of those situations, as I say, you know, times have changed so dramatically. It's, it's, it's even, you know, not worth looking back at it and trying to compare it to, to the current uh, set of regulations that we have. No, times have changed for the better in that regard, certainly. Brundle's uh, race lasted only uh, just over a lap on the restart before he spun out after tagging Pedro Diniz at the same corner. And eight laps later, there was another clumsy incident in the same spot when Jean Lacy came from miles back to try to attack Eddie Irvine for fourth. Lacy spun into the right rear wheel of the Ferrari and, and tore up his own side pod, which put him out of the race. Lacey didn't offer much of an explanation beyond saying that Irvine was holding him up and he could see the leaders getting away, so he had to try something. So, Matt, this was the the third incident down at this corner before the race was even 10 laps old. You briefly mentioned this earlier. What was your assessment of this collision? Well, Irvine definitely left the door open, but he was entitled to because Lacey was absolutely nowhere near him approaching the corner and only caught up by not really breaking for it, so... Yeah, like we, we spoke about Ross Braun's thoughts about Alacy at the start. Ross Braun watching that clip must have surely, even at that moment, gone, oh, this, this might be quite hard to mould into another Michael Schumacher, hadn't it? At the front, the Williams drivers were leading the way with the lighter two-stopping Schumacher keeping them company in the opening stint. Hill radioed into the pit saying that Villeneuve was holding him up and Patrick's head's, head's response was to tell Hill to drop back and catch back up to prove it, which Hill did a couple of times. Hill said in his book, I wasn't really pushing, but I could see Jacques was all over the road and using every bit of track. But Villeneuve's version of the story is that he wasn't pushing too hard either. He wrote in his 1996 book, Damon was very quick. On some laps, I would be quicker and get a small advantage and then not push as hard. Then Damon would close up and I'd have to do another quick lap to preserve the cushion. In his F1 TV appearance, Villeneuve added, I didn't build a gap because I drove like I did in, in, in the States. When Once you're ahead, you just wait for a safety car, and I didn't have the habit yet of doing quali laps the whole race. It took me a few races to figure that out. In IndyCar, once you're in the lead, you just sit there because you're expecting a safety car at some point. Gary, if you... Uh, in the uh, luxurious position of having two drivers dominating at the front, fluctuating their pace like this against each other, would you have been inclined to just tell them to get on with it? Or was Williams's advantage so big that they could just let this play out? Well, it's, a, it's a difficult thing to do because, you know, Jackie Stewart 
used to tell his drivers when I worked for Stuart Grand Prix that the, the objective was to win the race at the slowest pace possible because you were easier on the car, you were easier on everything. So that is what it's all about. Nowadays, because you have pit stops and different tyres and different strategies, you know, it's a slightly different deal. Um, and that's where team team orders have come into play a lot more than back in, the, in 1996. So, you know, currently if we see that going on, you'll hear the drivers, uh, you know, getting onto the uh, phoning home as such, trying to get somebody to interfere with the race. So I, I wouldn't be worried about that as long as you have a good, solid team being run from the pit wall to say what's going to happen. You have to have that, I think. So if a driver wants to is in the lead and wants to, to back off and, and just keep his lead and be nice to the, the machinery, then that should be fine. And the, the, the second driver needs to respect that. You know, it's one of those sort of situations you, 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 you have to absorb everything as it's happening and you have to make sure that you get the best result for the team at any point in time. And I should say for any, um, for any slightly newer uh, F1 fans who are confused by Villeneuve's claims that F1 doesn't really have safety cars, Back in the 90s, safety car periods were still still a novelty, so you didn't get um, you didn't get them as much as as you might do now. So it was very much an American racing thing that F1 hadn't properly adopted at this stage. But the race came alive after the pit stops as Hill pitted two laps later than Villeneuve and rejoined just ahead of him. But Villeneuve wasn't about to settle for that, so let's hear what happened next via the superb commentary of none other than the late, great Murray Walker. And that Damon Hill takes the lead and stays ahead of Jacques Villeneuve. Well, you can't be much closer than that. And Villeneuve realises that now he's got to go for it because Damon Hill's tyres are not as warm as Villeneuve's are. There's not a lot of difference in it. And, and Villeneuve fights, fights, fights and retakes the lead. Fantastic! Absolutely incredible! What a sensational scrap! And remember, this is for the lead between teammates. Villeneuve called this battle his highlight of the race in his 1996 book. On F1 TV with Julian Palmer, he said it was frustrating to lose the lead as he'd not been pushing before the stops and he learned from that. Hill was forced to defend into turn three, which compromised his exit and allowed Villeneuve to get a run around the outside of him into the turn four left-hander. Villeneuve said, I knew my tyres were warm and his weren't, so I had two or three corners. At turn four, I just didn't get, get off the gas and I hoped he was going to lift. Had I not got him there, then I would have stayed behind. Matt, was this our first glimpse at the sort of opportunism Villeneuve was capable of in wheel-to-wheel battle? Yeah, and it was great. And this this was not an era of loads of really good F1 overtaking. Apart from Schumacher, I just don't feel like a lot of people were making interesting moves at this point. There's a lot of half-hearted semi-darts to the inside and then going, oh no, wait for the pit stops or final pit stops done, race over. For all Villeneuve's faults that have become apparent through his career, he had imagination to try things that other people wouldn't. And we got a really good look at it in this very first race. And that's why it stands as probably one of his top five performances of his entire F1 career. No, I don't know whether to be delighted or depressed about that fact. It was only a couple of laps after this that Villeneuve made a big error at turn one, going wide onto the grass and getting well out of shape. He was lucky that Hill was so close to him that Damon had to lift off, so he didn't get a great run on Villeneuve. And Jacques then defended pretty aggressively down to turn three to hold on to the lead. Villeneuve has always taken responsibility for this error, saying he braked 
too late in the bumpy braking zone for Turn 1 and locked the rears, partly because the car was heavy with fuel again after the pit stop, and partly because he got distracted by the backmarker car of Olivier Panis, and because he'd driven down that straight looking in his mirrors at Hill. Jacques called it a rookie mistake that could have ended in tears, and he said he thought he was just going to spin the car completely when he was on the grass, which Damon was also thinking, watching this from just half a second back. Uh, Gary, you've been to Melbourne, you've been to Albert Park plenty of times, you'll, you'll know the circuit well. Losing it on the bumps in the braking zone for Turn 1, was that an understandable mistake for somebody in their first Grand Prix? Um, not really. Those bumps were there from the first lap he did. He, he should have known they're there. Uh, he would have uh, ran the car with high fuel, low fuel through there. So at the end of the day, it was probably just a, a, a lack of concentration. And, and I go back to what Jackie Stewart says, win the race at the slowest possible pace. And obviously he, at that point in time, he wasn't. Uh, he was affected by what had happened earlier in the race and was trying to make sure now he started pushing on and kept, kept, the, kept the pressure up. So rookie mistake um, no I don't believe so because you you know you shouldn't make those those mistakes to be honest uh, if you're going to be a future world champion which obviously he came out as uh, you need to make sure you you take every point out of every Grand Prix you can and uh, it was a mistake but it shouldn't have been it was a concentration mistake as opposed to a rookie mistake Villeneuve held the lead for another 20 laps or so but in the closing stages he was shown a pit board saying slow which he said he didn't understand. Then he started getting radio messages to slow down, and when he didn't follow those instructions initially, his engineer Jock Clear started screaming at him to slow down, telling him he wouldn't finish the race if he didn't back off. Villeneuve said on F1 TV, you want to take the risk, you want to chance it, it's so hard to give up a win, but you also have to think about it, the oil pressure going down is never a good sign, it was pointless to keep the lead and blow the engine five laps later. So what caused the oil leak then? This has never been conclusively answered, but the theory that Villeneuve's off triggered the leak is wide of the mark. You only have to look at Hill's discoloured rear wing that some of our audience mentioned at the top of the show. That was before this moment, so that tells you that Villeneuve already had the leak before he went off. Villeneuve said on F1 TV, an oil tube was put in the wrong place and it was stuck in between the floor and the engine and it kept getting squished every time I hit a bump, a curb or under braking. I didn't hit anything when I went off, it was just soft grass. On giving up the win, he wrote in 1996, I felt crushed. Everything suddenly became heavier as if a great weight had descended on me. After fighting so hard and so well, there was a tremendous letdown. To have victory in sight, then to have it taken away was devastating. But it was satisfying to hold my own against the F1 establishment. For anyone who doubted it, my competitiveness proved that I was not out of place. I knew there was still a lot to learn, and had I won my first race, it might not have been an accurate reflection of this. Matt, simple question. Do you think we'll ever see someone come that close to winning on their F1 debut again? Yeah, I'm certain we will, actually. I know it's very easy to think Think of all the testing Villeneuve had. Testing's virtually banned now. That, that can't happen. The simulators don't make up for that completely. But... If a top team with enough of a performance advantage at that first race and a good enough car put their faith in a, an absolute rookie super talent, yeah, I, I think this can definitely happen again. You think, okay, it was a testing era, but you think of how well Lewis Hamilton did in his first races for McLaren. 
I think of Max Verstappen winning in his first Red Bull race. Okay, he'd had a year and a bit in F1 by then, but still, straight in the top team, winning in the first attempt in that team. It's, I think it's often more about sustain it's it's the sustained success that's harder to achieve if you haven't got experience you can probably put in a one-off performance just based on your raw talent and the package being right but it's how you then deal with the ups and downs and adversity and the mental challenges and stuff that takes longer to get on top of consistently so yeah i i I see no reason why we couldn't have this again i'm not sure it would be like the indycar champion popping in and then maybe not looking quite that good for the rest of his entire f1 career afterwards again but I'm I'm certain we'll have a similar story at some point within the next 20 years. Good optimism. I like that. Uh, Let's look at Hill then. He got off to the perfect start in the end by winning the first race of the year. And in Damon's book, he said, it was hard luck on Jack, but I knew I could deal with his pace. Everyone at Williams was impressed with how Hill had rebounded from his bruising 1995 season. And he has admitted uh, that at the end of that year, he was depressed. Over the winter, he'd changed his training regime and he'd sought the advice of an expert he'd seen interviewed for a BBC documentary about what made Michael Schumacher so great. Hill said the woman called Mary Spillane specialised in advising politicians on interview techniques and how to protect yourself in the public eye. And in the Schumacher documentary, she had listed Hill's faults. She came to visit Damon and gave him some advice, which included the line, don't invite the world to pile on top of you. Hill said this transformed his approach to 1996. He said he felt the team rallying around him. He said Frank Williams asked him what he was doing differently and he told Frank he'd just shed a skin. Patrick Head said Damon came back a completely different man, self-assured and confident of his ability. And Adrian Newey said Hill was back to where he was prior to the public war of words with Schumacher. He once more had a spring in his step. So Matt, how big do you think the difference was between the 1995 and 1996 versions of Damon Hill? Uh, I don't want this to be a really negative about Hill answer, but it is going to be a little bit because as the understanding you get about what Hill was dealing with through 94 and 95 becomes really clear in his book. And it makes absolute sense. You know, he had a through everything he'd been through in his life. And then he'd gone from being a really surprised Williams choice to within a year and a bit being its title hope after Senna had died in this extraordinarily controversial and strange title fight with Schumacher. That's going to mess with your mind. Um, definitely. And then 95, his driving was all over the place at times. And, you know, that was coming from, the kind of negative place he'd put himself as well, the pressure he was putting on on himself and the way the team kind of wasn't gelling with what Hill needed psychologically. Um, He was definitely in much better shape on that front and and that regard in 1996, but he wasn't having to go up against Michael Schumacher and a peak of its powers Benetton team. You know, you can, you could tell that Hill quite quickly realized that compared to him, Villeneuve was a bit immature and at that point a bit slower most of the time as well, but capable of these, these old performances that were amazing. So I hate to say Hill had it easy in 96, but he had it relatively easy compared to what he'd been up against the previous two years. And when you have it a bit easier, it's easier to stay on a on a good even keel mentally um, as well. He did make heavy weather of a few bits of that year. Nürburgring after some things went wrong in the race in the pits. His driving was pretty scrappy. There were other races. He spun twice in the rain at Barcelona. Okay, everybody did pretty much. But, you know, this this wasn't, 
it looks on paper like an absolutely brilliant dominant season he ended up pulling off and a lot of it was and I'm I'm really happy that Damon Hill has an F1 world title under his belt and I'm really happy that he found more peace within himself after 1995 but I don't know if Mary Spillane's advice would have you know carried him through if he'd been up against Schumacher at Benetton still in 96 I really don't Let's finish the episode then with the final podium finisher, which was Irvine's Ferrari after Schumacher retired just after half distance with brake problems. Irvine was a minute down on Hill, so Ferrari definitely weren't in Williams' league, but Irvine had comfortably beaten Berger's Benetton and Hackenden's McLaren to clearly suggest Ferrari was best of the rest. But it's no secret that this isn't a car many people look back on fondly, whether that's fans or people who were at Ferrari at the time. And we can now hear some first-hand insight from the man ultimately responsible for that car, F1 design legend John Barnard. Barnard was recently interviewed for the race's new F1 tech show, which is co-hosted by Gary and Ed Straw, who bring back V10's listeners, of course, know well. And they quizzed Barnard on how the 96 Ferrari ended up looking so, shall we say, chunky. So let's hear what Barnard told them. That was as a result of wind tunnel testing. And I have to say, it was a result of me um, leaving my aero guy alone to go and do the wind tunnel testing. <laughs> what happened was um, he, he put this, following the rules exactly as they were sort of written, if you want, and, and producing this headrest thing alongside the driver, he did that on the model in the tunnel and he phoned me up and he said, oh, do you know what? He said, this is making it better. This is giving us better numbers. And I said, are you sure? And he said, yeah, we've tried it a couple of times and it's improved the numbers. And I said, but, you know, it doesn't look right. It sort of looks wrong somehow. And he said, well, you know, we've checked it again. What happened was that, that we went with that um that result if you like but he hadn't looked at the airflow into the airbox into and around the airbox and what it had done it had screwed up the airflow into the airbox and if you ever look at some of the pictures of Schumacher driving it yeah Gary's got it on the straight he's got his head over like that was all to improve the airbox flow and because of these these high side pieces um I can't remember what the next, then the next car I did, I think that, that, that car was type 647, the 648, which was my last Ferrari um, before Ross came along. Um, we'd, we'd taken all that down and taken it away and much more like, like everybody else had gone for. But um, it, it came from the, my aero guy phoning me up and saying, it's made it better. <laughs> but you hadn't looked at all the all the different angles for that for what it did. You don't get something for nothing, do you? You know that was the point. So yeah, we paid for it in another way. It, I mean, to be fair, it had a fair bit of downforce that car because it, it what did it won Spain in the wet. I think Schumacher was sailing away from everybody, and that's I think because it had really good downforce. What it didn't have was 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 um, a good straight line speed. Really, and that was probably its, its biggest downfall. 
Fascinating stuff from Barnard there. And look out for him appearing on the Race F1 Tech Show, which you'll be able to find wherever you get your podcasts. As for Irvine, he said it felt special to be on the podium in his first start for Ferrari, particularly given the amount of problems they'd had in pre-season and how little running he'd managed before the race weekend. Gary, you would have been at those tests where the Ferrari kept breaking down. Given how much trouble they seemed to be in during testing, were you surprised to see them lock out the second row and get a car home on the podium? Um, surprise not really the word. You, you know, again, they had the, the might of Ferrari behind them. They had a big team. Um, so it was just a matter of recognising the problems and, uh, and addressing them. And obviously because they were the complete team, you know, they had their engine department, the gearbox department, the chassis department, everything was interrelated. It wasn't as though you were working with somebody, you know, thousands of miles away. Um, so it was a, it's a different deal. The, the main thing is to make sure that you're, you're covering the problems that are causing your reliability. Try to get the car to the flag, even if it does cost you a little bit of pace. And if it's one problem that's happening all the time, then it's a lot easier than if it's 10 different problems. So not really knowing the detail of their problems it was uh, it was something that i think you know you would expect them to be there and when they would get there you would know they would be competitive whether it's you know third and fourth or fifth and sixth they'd still be competitive so it wasn't really a surprise but uh, getting to the checker flag is probably the bigger surprise because i don't think anybody expected that to happen because you know they had so many long run reliability problems and you know Irvine was as surprised as anybody to be honest so yeah, it, it it was nice to see it for Irvine because he deserved it, you know, having, having worked with him for a few years. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, it's competition and you don't want anybody to finish ahead of you. Yep, that's a very good point. And uh, as for Irvine joining Ferrari, that's a brilliant story in itself that we've told in the past. I think in our Nürburgring 95 episode, so go and look for that. We'll leave it there for Australia 1996. And no matter how many times I watch this one back, the result never changes. Villeneuve's engine never holds on. But he did make his mark on F1 that day, as did Albert Park, which is still a mainstay of the F1 calendar, COVID aside, of course. Thanks to Gary and to Matt for your recollections of this one. Uh, Everybody listening, make sure you get your questions in for the end of the series using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter or by emailing BringBackV10s at the-race.com. And consider joining the Race Members Club if you'd like early access to ad-free versions of the show. Next time, we're heading off to 2003 and the Hungarian Grand Prix, where uh, a young driver named Fernando Alonso famously took his first win, managing to lap Michael Schumacher in the process. The Athletic.